Okay, so just questions on this passage, what it means, what I had to say. I got some places we can go if we need to. There are all sorts of implications about this, directions we could take it in, but you guys start. Renee needs a microphone. I thought about the people standing on the corner when I'm on my way to work and how to rightly think of all that and respond to all that. Yeah. Um, One of the points I want to make with this is that um, the context of James is very specific to the church. And and I'm not saying it's limited to that, but it's... um, because of the fact that the term in the Old Testament is used exclusively of justice and judgments, this is not some general principle of um, equity. This is about justice and injustice, and about receiving a face or a bribe. And so if you think back to the series we did last summer on race, justice, and the Bible, um, I defined injustice as a failure to serve or perform or act or not act my obligation to my neighbor. If God has obligated me in some respect in his law of how I am to treat or not treat my neighbor, to fail to do that is injustice, Um, which means grace can't be used in justice categories. In fact, that was one of my critiques of some of the social justice movement is a confusion of grace and justice categories. Um, so if grace, if the whole notion of grace is unmerited, undeserved, then, um, the, the person to whom grace, who gets less grace has no complaint if we're actually talking about grace, right? Um, so here, because of the connection to judgments, I'd limit this to my obligations to my neighbor. So if for some reason you'd have to establish I'm obligated ethically to give to the panhandler, to give it to the person on the side of the street. If that is the case, then yeah, it's unjust to not do so. And if the reason you don't do so is because they're dressed in shabby clothing, you're guilty of what James is talking about. I don't think you're ethically obligated to give to every person with a sign. Um, Therefore, it would be a different framing. Does that distinction make sense? And what's, what's tricky is there are some forms of partiality that I think are perfectly fine and innocent. The Apostle Paul is clearly partial to the Jewish people. Romans, Romans 9, my brethren, my heart's desire is for my countrymen. I could wish myself accursed of God if they might be saved. Where's the first place Paul goes in every city he goes? The Jewish synagogue. Now, by and large, they tell him to get lost, and he has a ministry to the Gentiles. And so what I would say is, Paul is fine in having his um, partiality, if you use a term, not the receiving a face, but clearly he's more concerned, he's more grieved, he's more in anguish about the lostness of his countrymen than he is about any other people group. And as long as that doesn't interfere ever and become an excuse from ever to not do what he ought to do in regards to a Gentile, I think he's fine. I think there are missionaries, my heart's for the Chinese people. My, awesome. Don't ever use that as an excuse why you're not doing some good thing you should be doing to somebody who's not in that group. So it's not even a a general condemnation of don't have um, people that you're more concerned about, you're more burdened for. Biblically, that's clearly fine. The problem is, is if I say I'm ministering to the Laotian community, that's what I'm doing, and so I walk by an Ethiopian 
because I'll let somebody else minister to him. He needs help. He's asked me, you know, go talk to the, I, I specialize in Laotians. That's what I, now I think I'm guilty of partiality. I should have done some good thing and I didn't. And I used this basis as, as why. So it's not as simple as this blank you have to treat everyone exactly the same. That's partly why I was saying I think there are legitimate recipients of honor. I don't think the, the, the put on in place of putting off partiality is... Because I've met some people that that's their interpret. Okay, the only way I can do this is if I treat everyone exactly the same. Well, A, that's an unbearable yoke and burden. You'll never do it. And like, just take... Take First Timothy, right? Don't rebuke an older man sharply, but as a father. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. I'm going to treat different types of people differently. So if I try to treat everyone the same, I'm actually going to disobey the scripture in places. So it's, it's not as simple as just saying, we'll just do everything the same for everybody. It's a rejecting a worldly um, value system that says who's up and who's down. But back, that's a long-winded way of answering your question about the guy asking for money. I'm talking about partiality as it refers to what I'm obligated to do. James is going to give an example just a little later in chapter 2. Your brother or sister comes to your door. They're naked. They're without clothing. You're not free to say, I don't feel led to give. If they're your brother or sister, if they really are lacking, you are under obligation to supply their need. Full stop. Um, urgent need. Titus talks about cases of urgent need. And if you withheld that on some basis of some non-biblical value system, you're doing this. You're guilty. Um, but there's a lot of freedom. Who do I witness to? Who do I serve? Who do I invite over? And that's where if you really take this as treating everyone the same, you actually could end up with quotas. Well, how many poor people have I had over? How many Anglo people have I had over? How many Irish people have I had over? And you start keeping a list because you don't want to be partial. And I don't want to turn this into some impossible law either. We're dealing with justice. I mean, the Old Testament examples of this term are so clearly justice and judgments. And I didn't make the point in the sermon, but we are biblically under obligation for how we treat each other when we gather. Let me give you a couple examples here. Um, So, in... uh, Philippians 4.21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. It's a command. Um, 1 Peter 5.14, greet everyone with a kiss of love. Peace be with you all. 3 John 1.15, peace be with you. Greet the friends. The friends greet you. No, sorry. The friends greet you. Greet the friends in the name of the Lord. So we are biblically commanded to greet one another. And so when we gather on Sunday morning... It's not a suggestion. One of the things the Lord wants his body to do is to greet itself. And if you're picking and choosing who you're greeting, and if it's a real obligation, track my languages, then it is a real injustice and a real wrong. If you only greet the wealthy people, if you won't greet the people who look shabby, oh yeah, you're obligated to do that. That's not a suggestion. You must, we must do that. The Lord's commanded us to do that. Um, and so if I'm picking and choosing who I'm greeting because I don't like the way they're dressed, yeah, that's injustice, that's ungodly, that's exactly what James is talking about. Um, that was a long answer to your question, but there's a bunch of things I wanted to say on that. I have a part B to that. Yes, sir. So in Matthew 25, at the final judgment, sheep and the goats, Yeah. I was naked, you clothed me, feed me. Yeah. Is Jesus talking about people in the church being in those situations that we clothed, that we took care of, or is it made to a broader application? 
I'm going to largely punt. I think I, I haven't studied Matthew 25 in detail. I know what the people I respect think it means. Uh, yeah, I think it's generally talking about believers. I think even more narrowly, it's probably talking about Jewish believers in the tribulation period. Um, I wouldn't get dogmatic on that point, but, but yes, fair enough. Um, yeah. But I'm willing to punt and change my mind later because I'm mostly repeating what people I respect think and not my own personal yeah, study. So. Totally get it. Cool. Other questions, thoughts? We've got to get on the microphone. Um, if you're greeting people, and you need to greet them from the heart that you're wanting to raise up Christ and not greeting them up so you can be some popular, you know, I'm, well, I'm greeting and I'm happy and I'm lifting everybody up and look, look at me. But how can you be pleasant and greet and so on and, and do it in respect and have it in your heart that it's Christ-based? Amen. Thing. In fact, turn, turn to Hebrews 10. The passage that tells us we need to gather as believers, again, we're under obligation to do that, tells us in part why, and it helps inform what you're saying. What's the purpose of our greeting? You can just greet like a politician so that everyone thinks you're a friendly guy, um, and that's a self-centered greeting. But Hebrews 10, um, here we go, verse, uh, well, I, I text that a context is a pretext for a proof text. So let's start in 19 where we get the three lettuces, three heads of lettuce. Um, therefore, he's going to basically say, these things are true. Because these things are true, let us, he's going to say it three times. Um, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest. So because we have confidence and because we have a great high priest, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast and confess shin of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So literally... What you should be doing to really fulfill this, you're spending time on Sunday on your drive here, on Saturday night, how am I going to encourage some people? And then your, your real gauge of how successful you are is, was I able to encourage them? Was I able to help them spur on to love and good works? I want the Lord to use me to minister some measure of grace so they receive encouragement to be faithful in their walk. That's the attitude of the greeting. And there's nothing about me being special in that. So that is absolutely um, Curtis, not Lee. Curtis? Curtis. All right. Um, the, that is absolutely the attitude that we should be encouraging. It's nothing about me. Look at me. It's about, Lord, use me. And it's not some obligation. You've got to find some. There's somebody who walked in here and I haven't greeted them yet. But as you meet people, be greeting them. And as you do that, do it without partiality. Do it without prejudice. Amen. Okay. Dawn. Got Galatians. I forget the reference. Six, ten, uh, six one. I'm sorry. Galatians um, six one. Now that I said that, I don't isn't know. that my brother? If any of you overcome any trespass, you who are no. Is that um, Galatians six one? 
do do good unto all men, but especially the household of faith. The household of faith. faith. Amen. So. No, six one is anyone caught in a trespass. So is it six ten? Yes. Yes. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we should have general goodwill and desire to be a blessing to all people, and especially believers. That's that's sort of the hierarchy. And you could put, and especially the members of your own household. You could add, I mean, there's circles of responsibility moving outwards that we have, concentric circles. My responsibilities for the people in this room who are part of this body is greater than my responsibility for people gathering at this very moment 10 miles down the street. And my responsibility for them is probably greater than people who I'll never see in another country and, and so on. You know, like the Lord holds me responsible for who is in front of me. Um, yeah, amen. What else? I thought it was interesting in, in verse 1 where he contrasts, seems to, to me, contrast the Lord of glory um, with persons. I uh, Again, the, the passage you mentioned from Philippians, the, the kenosis, um, even Christ, the, the Lord of glory, manifested as a per, as not only a person, but a lowly person. Right. Well, that's, that's the point I was trying to make, which is that in the incarnation, Christ subverted all the expectations of power and pomp and wealth. He didn't show up as a decadent king. He didn't show up with a mighty army. He didn't show up in strength. And we see glory in that. We praise him for that. So when we come here and we praise him, we, what do we praise you? We praise you that you humbled yourself. We praise you that you set aside your power. We praise you that you came down and you suffered on our behalf. We recognize this upside-down value system. He is praiseworthy precisely because he didn't come in power and in strength. How then can we, in the gathering in which we do this, take back the world standard and now we're worshiping power, wealth, and clout? That, that's precisely, I think, the contrast he's trying to make. Christ is ultimately our glory. And any glory we recognize is directed and channeled by him. You know, and, and that's the same thing Christ says, whoever is great among you will be your slave. Who are the ones we should be honoring in the body? The servants. The, the lowly servants. I mean, the word, the word diakonos means dia through the dust. The, the one who goes through the dust. That, that's the servants. Yeah, I don't want to get my feet dirty. You go through the dust. You deal with it. Those are the people who are to honor. Um, so it's, there are, is place for honor in the body. Honor those who serve you faithfully in the Lord. Ex- consider the outcome of their faith and imitate it. I mean, there, there is honor in the body. If, if my old pastor of 20 years came here, I would honor him. And I think that'd be right. Um, what I'm not to do is honor people based on the world's standards, especially the world's standards that God has subverted. I mean, the incarnation subverts all of that, right? I mean, the Jews precisely stumble because they don't want signs and miracles, and the Greeks precisely stumble because they want wisdom, and Christ doesn't show up with that type of wisdom. I mean, he never quotes the Platonic philosopher. He never quotes their philosophers. He just puts it all on his head. And it's intentionally done to just smash and demolish their wisdom and their pretenses. So for us to take them back on and value them, is, I'm, okay, I'm saying the same thing over and over, I think, that you were saying as well. Am I, or am I just rambling? A little bit of both. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. Microphone. 
Does he not have the mic, or do you still have it? Oh, he took the mic away. A judicious move, Jamie. Oh, okay. Go down. Um, just that, that rather than, than um, looking at people that, who were made in the image of God, uh, by, by honoring a person for just being a person or, or their, their, uh, where they are in the pecking order, uh, we by by doing that we we, we dishonor God, and, and God honored that person by becoming a man. Mm. Beca- honors manhood or humanity by becoming a man. Mm. I, I I think I see what you're saying. That the God's is what you're saying. God's bestowed upon us an honor and a dignity by bearing his image. He's bestowed upon us an honor by coming and dwelling among us. And then we're picking arbitrary things to honor instead. Is that your point? Yeah. Okay. No, amen. Amen. Who's next? Oh, Jeremy. OJ. 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 Original Jeremy. Original, yes. He informed me when I got here that I was OJ other Jeremy. So I countered with, well, you're OJ original Jeremy. So there. Uh, so my comment, when when this scripture passage is talking about wealth, for the most part, yeah. um, I kept thinking about uh, popularity and, and power. You know, as a as a as a religion, we crave for famous people to be Christians. Yes, it happens all the time. Oh yeah, and when someone. Uh, make some sort of claim for, hey, I believe in God, we're like, yes, Barry Bonds is a Christian, or Kanye West, or, you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And then they do something that is uh, counter to yeah. our beliefs, and then we're crushed, yeah. you know? Um, and not only us, but the, the world sees these people, and they see the respect and honor that we give to these famous people because we want them so badly to be one of us. We want a figurehead, yeah. you know, and it can do real damage. So apart from apart from us not obeying scripture by giving partiality to people who, with fame and, and wealth, it also can do a, a real harm to our witness and to our, to our faith. No, it looks like to the world we value the exact same things. When we think, man, if one of these celebrities became... We should rejoice if one of these celebrities... Be, professes Christ, we should not be giving them immediately a ministry to run, <laughs> right? Um, so if, uh, praise God, Barry Bonds, Kanye, or Chris Pratt, or any of these people who I've read certain might be, like, that'd be love, wouldn't that be just amazing if God saved one of them? That'd be awesome. Um, to then thinking, and if we could just get one of them to show up and speak, oh, then stuff would start to happen. And you're going to hear, I don't want to say too much, because this is Jake's text next week, Jacob Moore's text next week. But not only is that wrong thinking, it's reverse thinking. God's strategy, his stated purpose, is he wants to defeat the world's system with the antithesis of the world's system. He wants to win a military victory with guys fighting. He wants his army fighting with sticks against people with machine guns, and he wants his army to win. So if somebody shows up and is like, I got this great gun, that's not, no, no. We, we want sticks. We, we want the stupidest weapons you could think of. I, he wants Samson killing the Philistines with a jawbone. That's what he wants. 
because he wants it to be clear it's his glory. So there are not many. There are some noble. There are some wise. There are some mighty. Not many. And every time one of those not many comes in and someone who's noble or someone who's wise, we start to think, yeah, now things will start to happen. And Paul has to write and James has to write, that's not the battle strategy, guys. That's not the plan. Um, and and we, we, yeah, we, to the world watching, and the way we'll circle around one of these people, and what we should say when a celebrity makes a profession of faith, should be, I think, praise God and we'll see. Like, love believes all things, hopes all things. Some, I hear someone's a Christian, great. And the tree will be known by its fruit. Praise God, I'll pray for him. That's, that's wonderful to hear. I'm not hearing, they're not testifying to me of their faith, right? Um, and we'll see. But instead, we'll circle around them and pass on the post to 800 people. And then four weeks later, when that's not exactly what they meant, or they do something stupid, we look stupid because we just rallied around them like clearly implicit. If we get this celebrity person, then things will start to happen. We, yeah, I see it all the time. Um, and so I, I would not hitch your wagon to some celebrity profession of faith. Um, and, it, and it discourages me how many of these people who become, who profess Christ, who have some level of fame in the world, immediately want to start a ministry. And, you know, Paul says not to lay hands hastily on new converts for service, you know. Um, they can certainly be used by God, but to immediately go from being an unbeliever to traveling the world and speaking at conferences is probably not a good step. There probably need to be some steps in between. <laughs> um, so well, I can only speak personally, but the from there are several popular Christian voices from my youth who have who have fallen away, deconverted, have yes, ex-evangelical, right? Oh, yeah, and and it should be yeah. hard for us to see that happen, but it should be no harder than if my yeah. neighbor who professed to be a Christian is doing things that yeah. are uh, harming their. Uh, witness um but it's it it hurts us more than that because we we want so badly for them to be good voices for the culture well i think it's because we really i think and i'm really stealing from jacob next week but that's okay i I, i'm okay with that um uh we we secretly want to have the best of both worlds i i know i do I want to, and I'd say that as a confession, not as something I'm proud of. I want unbelievers to think I'm smart. I, want, I don't want unbelievers to think I'm a fool. I, I want unbelievers to think that I'm sophisticated and not some flat earther, you know? Um, and yet, if I really wrapped my head around God's plan, I should be just happy. I mean, I'm not going out of my way to try to make them think I'm an idiot, but why am I fighting against it? God's going to defeat the wisdom of this world with what the world will view as foolishness. So why does it trouble me if they think I'm a fool? It does, though. <laughs> and I want to explain why I'm not, you know? Um, and so the, I, I, part of me still wants to have my cake and eat it, too. I, I want to have God's value system in Christ, and I want the respect of the world. View me as somewhat powerful, as somewhat mighty, as somewhat wise, as somewhat capable. Um, and it, it dies hard. I know it does in my heart, at least. You know, uh, it dies hard. And uh, I, I'm aware of when I'm when I'm trying to defend the faith and I'm trying to witness when I'm really 
just trying to, you may not agree with me, but I'm not an idiot, <laughs> right? And, and again, I shouldn't be trying to be an idiot, but I shouldn't, I should not be the slightest bit dis- surprised or dismayed when those who are perishing smell death instead of life. When those who are perishing think this is folly. That shouldn't surprise or dismay me one bit. Um, or the flip side can be when we begin to think, if only we could get this celebrity person in, or this smart person in, smart Christian person in. D.A. Carson's one of the smartest Christians I know. I've profited greatly from him. But if I thought, if we got D.A. Carson to speak, then people would get saved. That's equally fallacious. Paul's whole point moving forward in 1 Corinthians 3, one man waters, one... Who, okay, go to 1 Corinthians 3. Um, I mean, I, I have listened to 70, 80, 90 lectures by D.A. Carson, just absolutely encouraged and blessed by his, his teaching and the way he thinks through Scripture and thinks through issues. But, and this was something that when I, I, mean, I was going to church out in California, I was in seminary, John MacArthur's church, and he would regularly take six or eight weeks that he'd be out of the pulpit in the summer, a combination of writing, speaking at conferences, and some time with his family. So regularly, in the second half of the summer, Johnny Mac was out of the pulpit. And I caught myself catching who was speaking instead, deciding whether we'd show up early to first service because normally you'd go to first service, and then you'd, they'd have two services. And then during the second service, we'd go to our small group, our 300-person small group. Our small group was like church. Um, and I s- started realizing, oh, no, it's the guy with the southern accent. And my only complaint was his drawl. I didn't, I, he put me to sleep. And um, he didn't put me to sleep. I was inattentive when he spoke. That'd be an accurate way of saying it. And I had no complaint. It wasn't like I thought his life was ungodly or his teaching was off. It was just he spoke in a way that I found to be, it was just a slow southern drawl, and I would just sort of zone out. And it occurred to me that I was beginning to think that John MacArthur made things grow. Israel could stand in the Sinai Peninsula in the baking heat of the sun while Moses read the book of Deuteronomy, when it says he read the law, he read at least Deuteronomy. He may have read more, no less than Deuteronomy. But I'm upset because I'm in an air-conditioned room with a guy who's harder to pay attention to, who I freely admit is fully qualified as an elder to speak. Yeah, that was convicting. But so for 1 Corinthians 3, the error here is this. Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted... So Paul is the church planter at Corinth. I planted, and Apollos watered. But God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gets growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wage according to his labor. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So the danger is thinking that, man, if we just got... D.A. Carson here. People would get saved. What you're saying, in effect, is if, if D.A. Carson does the watering, that's when the growth happens. Or let's get in some famous evangelist, and then we'll have a revival. God makes... You can evaluate a minister. He does give us a criteria, how faithfully they serve. So we can honor legitimately. You have, sir, you've been faithfully watering God's flock for 30 years. That's awesome. I think it's a completely valid way to honor someone. 
their faithful service in the field, in the vineyard. They don't make things grow. I have no reason to think that some third grader accurately proclaiming the gospel will have less effect than a PhD person proclaiming the gospel. God makes it grow. And so the temptation is always to think the celebrity or the wisdom or the wealth or whoever is going to somehow add to the power of the gospel and God's word. So if we just got this business community leader, if we just got this celebrity, if we just got this famous person, if we just got this smart person, then eh, no. So, yes, we, we do that. All, we're guilty of that all the time, and it's embarrassing when we do it. And it's embarrassing when I catch my own heart trying to do it, too. Um, yes. Next. Nope. Matthew. Just to add on to what you were saying, there's a couple of things I want to talk about, but um, when dealing with the struggle of, you know, having the rich or the smart uh, talking, oh, we should get this person to talk, uh, that'll help people out. I think immediately of uh, Luke 16, uh, verse 30, and he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither, they, neither <laughs> will they be convinced if someone should rise up from the dead. Right. Yeah, the two axes that Paul identifies in, in 1 Corinthians that people want, the Jews want signs, the Greeks want wisdom. And so in Jesus' example in Luke 16, he anticipates an evangelism strategy meeting between Abraham and the rich man. And what's striking is they both want the same thing. The rich man wants his brothers to repent and not come to the place of torment. The rich man's goal, it's a good goal, we all, he, he and Father Abraham want the same thing. What they're disagreeing on is the methodology and so the rich man says, hey, send Lazarus back from the dead, and then my brothers will repent. They'll listen. And Abraham says, no, they have the scripture. They have Moses. Let them listen to them. No, but if... And so the other temptation, you know, if we could just work a miracle, if, if God, if you could just do this miracle, then the people in the community would see and believe. And Jesus' word is, is striking, if they don't receive Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. And the deep irony, of course, is Jesus knows in a few months he himself will rise from the dead and they're going to reject him. Um, you know, we say, if only I could be there when the Red Sea split. How'd the people that saw the Red Sea split do? Did they make it to Jordan? Two, two of them did. Two. How about when, when Elijah, the fire came down with the prophets of Baal? How'd the people who saw that do? Two days later, Elijah's fleeing and saying, I alone have left. Big signs and wonders don't tend to compel people for long periods of time. Jesus fed the 5,000, and they followed him across the sea on the next day and said, what sign will you do that we might believe? And then in case he didn't get the idea, he said, our fathers ate bread in the wilderness, hint, hint. That bread thing you did yesterday? So... In the same way, wisdom, right? I got all these questions. I mean, this is, this is my new answer for people when they throw questions out. I used to, I, and I try to cut to the chase more when I, when I, when someone's like, well, if you could just explain evolution to me, or if you could just explain the problem of evil, or if you could just explain. That's a great question. And there, there are some good, well thought out answers. And I will walk with you through that. But before we take the time to do that, is this truly the thing stopping you from bowing your knee to Christ? I've never had someone say, yeah, if you just could explain evolution, then I will bow my knee to Christ. Okay, then let's deal with what the real issue is. Um, but so, so partly I'd, I'd free you from thinking you need to have all the smart answers and stuff. Like, 
it pleases God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who are being saved. Okay, I really am now just doing Jake's message from next week, so we'll come back to James. Um, don't tell him. Shh. Um, okay, next question. Oh, are you still going? Sorry, there's a couple. Oh, Matthew's still going. I'm sorry. Um, I should have known better. Just uh, when, when dealing with partiality, something that's always kind of helped me out is that uh, all of us were chosen not because of something that we did. It was, you know, the wind blows where it will, mm. and so we chosen by the Spirit. None of us have done anything in particular to be, you know, chosen by God to be saved. The person on the street who's dying of, you know, some disease, they're homeless, they were chosen by God, just like we might have been chosen by God. And like, there's, there's no partiality in God, so why would we show partiality in ourselves? Right. Like, we're all going to the same place. We're all brothers of Christ. Why would we treat right. someone who Christ chose to be his brother as someone less than we would treat Christ himself? Well, and if anything, we were chosen because of our foolishness. I mean, you think of like a sword fighting master wants to show his prowess, he's going to have a duel. I'm going to intentionally pick the worst sword available to beat you with. And he picks me. Like, if anything, that, but that's the logic of 1 Corinthians 1. Get it, guys. He wants to shame the wise with the foolishness of the message preached. He wants to defeat their strength with weakness. He wants to defeat their, their nobility with ignobility. Get that. You know, there are some exceptions, but by and large, Constantine, yeah, he's a questionable dude. Um, he, saved, he saved baptism for his deathbed, you know, kind of. Anyway, don't get me going on Constantine. He did a lot of good, a lot of good stuff happened because of Constantine, no doubt. Constantine himself is, is, this, is a lot of question marks in my head over him. Um, but anywho, um, thank you, Mother. Any other thoughts or questions? I can't see what time is it there. Okay, we had 10 minutes. Okay, any other thoughts or questions on Oh, Linda. This would be the same premise that God used with Samuel when he sent him to Jesse to choose David, right? Yeah, yeah I got that reference in there. I didn't go oh. to it. Yeah, I, no, if you look in the notes, right, they should be there. I got okay. that reference right there in okay. uh, A1A2, 1A2, First okay. Samuel 16 and 7. Absolutely. Okay. Samuel is impressed. Oh, I'll read it. I got it right here in my printout. First um, Samuel 16, 6 through 7. When, so he's sending Samuel because he's found a new man because Saul's been rejected. I got a new man chosen as king. And he sends him to the house of Jesse. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance from the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. Absolutely. And which is the basis for why God isn't impressed with outward appearance. He doesn't receive faces. Oh, very, very pretty and handsome. I'll choose you. No, that's not how he operates. He's, he's just. Um, okay, next question. Okay, I got a rabbit trail I want to go down. Let's go to Leviticus 19 while we wait on questions. I think this is significant um, in our present day and age. If I were to do an addendum to our series on race and justice in the Bible, it would probably be on this issue. It is popular these days to believe that because of assumed inherent bias in regards to justice, whether it be the inherent fact that, of course, the rich are going to find the loopholes and, of course, they're going to oppress, 
where, of course, these people group have, have a system um, raised up against them. Let's grant that supposition for a moment. Because the argument is because of that, we need to counterbalance and put our thumbs on the scale the other way. You've got to be anti-racist, right? That's what affirmative action is trying to do. And in courts, the same thing. And what's striking is Leviticus 19 forbids both. You shall do no injustice in the court. Verse 15. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. You get that? Neither. Both of them are wrong. Justice and only justice will you do. Deuteronomy 16. And so it is very pop. No, and you can see the logic. James makes it clear. The rich can and do oppress the poor. Should we then put our thumbs on the scale the other way, guessing about the right amount to try to compensate for that? No. Not when we're dealing with justice, we don't. Justice and only justice. You don't, you're not partial to the poor or the great. I think that's important to say because I'm hearing so often, and I'm not even arguing the merit of whether or not this, the scales are balanced the other way, but the rationale is because this person's either economic status, this person's racial status, this person's gender status, whatever, because this person's got an uphill battle, let's put our thumb on the scale in their favor. Whatever that is you're doing is not justice, is all my point is. Whatever that is isn't justice. You don't favor either group. You're not partial either way. Whatever you're, whatever's coming out of that equation isn't justice. That's all I'm saying. Um, let's not pretend it is. So that's my final point. Any thoughts on that? Good day to you. Oh, we do have, oh, we do have a question on that. Okay. Oh, he's coming in. We well, got six minutes. Real, I was going to let you out early, but Dawn had to ruin that, it. But, um, oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> kind of following, getting on board your train of uh, taking from next week. But yeah, we're, we're, uh, James ultimately says that what you're doing is sin. Yes, and the the root of that sin, is, I think, uh, pretty much all sin is pride. Uh, we all have a tendency to say. I'm better than whoever because fill in the blank. Yeah. I'm white. I'm rich. I'm poor. I'm male. I'm female. I'm, you know, fill in the blank. Or that person is, is better yeah. or worse than because of fill in the blank. Well, and here's the pride of making yourself into a judge. Isn't being a judge and pronouncing judgments yes. a sense of power? And so, Taking yeah, the place I, of God. I, I, I would like to be a judge. I would like to rank people's merit and value with my ungodly scale. Yeah. I mean, that's ultimately the church. You've become evil judges with evil thoughts. That's what's at the root of all this. Stop it. Stop it. Yes. Here we go. Closing. Oh. Well, I also don't really have a way of putting it into phrasing it real fast, but I was thinking of the way I was raised. And you didn't go to church shabby or dirty 
because you were supposed to be honoring God. And I read Deuteronomy and, uh, well, actually the whole first five books. And there's a huge emphasis on jewels and the temple and lavish and honoring God. And yet, how do we teach our children not to be appearance generated and still oh, that's a great question be time clean we got four minutes okay no that's that's a great question four minutes how to do this this is great i was sorely tempted and i didn't i was sorely tempted on giving this morning's message wearing like a golf shirt instead of no no i'm dead serious i thought about doing it nothing nothing precisely the point no, no, precisely the point. No, no. I, I don't wear a sports jacket because it's righteous. Um, I don't wear a sports jacket because there's a law. Um, I try to pick my dress by what will be most forgettable. And I know if I'm too formal or too casual, I'll stand out. Um, and I also know that the heavier you are, the more work you've got to do to look neat and tidy. Um, no, trim people can look really sharp and well put together with like a t-shirt on and pressed shorts, right? Right, right. So, no. No, there's a, there's a danger. So first off, one thing I'd say is this. The Old Testament is a come-see religion. The, Old, the New Testament, the New Covenant's a go-tell. So there absolutely is an intentionality of the temple being golden and ornate and beautiful and adornment. Look how wealthy Solomon is and look at his riches that's not present in the New Covenant. That's one thing I'd say. Um, I, and let me lay aside questions of modesty and cleanliness. I think those are valid, right? Um, yeah, the church should not prefer or advantage any socioeconomic status. If the goal is we want slaves to be able to show up, if, if we're in the first century, a slave should be able to show up here without buying a new set of clothes, Right? Or you're dishonoring them. I mean, just think of the logic of the Lord's Supper. You had people who could not afford to bring food to eat communion. And there are other people saying, well, that's their tough luck. And, and Paul rebukes them for it. So if we're setting a bar of entry that is going to be an economic bar of entry, we need to repent. Like that, that must not be the case. Um, I would expect and I would encourage people to wear what they normally would wear and make sure it's 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 clean make sure it's modest i wouldn't encourage you to get a special set of sunday clothes now if you want to paul says some people honor one day to the lord and they honor it to the lord praise god i wouldn't want to burden anyone's conscience that you need to have church clothes um the early church met almost every day the slave did not have time to go change into their you know collared shirt um so if you want to honor God and, and dress up on Sunday, God bless you. I think Paul makes it clear that can be pleasing and acceptable to God. If you insist other people do it, watch out. Now you're, now you're taking the commandments of man and teaching them as the commandments of God. And I'll tell you one, one story that, that troubles me um, in my experience that I try to keep in mind. One of the, and by the way, I think our church does a decent job of this. I think there's a nice mix of people. There are people who are quite comfortable wearing sports jackets and ties, and there are people quite comfortable wearing more casual attire. I think that's great. I think the fact that people 
are free to do that is a good thing. And I think it'd be equally on the other end of the spectrum if everyone was wearing Hawaiian shirts, you know, um, and, and people felt bad if they... What? Well, no, there could be some churches where you got to dress down. If you dressed up, now you're standing out. And you're like, why are you doing that? I think that would be equally a problem. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it can go one way or the other. But I'll give you one, one example that somebody to be mindful of, the subtle ways we can tell people they don't belong. Um, my brother-in-law, Dave Golden, was um, playing some pickup basketball in L.A., um, and he was playing with a Latino guy. They were just wearing, like, jeans, T-shirt, playing, and he was trying to witness to him. I think the, the guy said he was a Christian or something, so Dave invited them to go to church with him, and he said he'd pick him up. The guy said, okay. And Dave, as a seminary student, there was a dress code in our seminary. We had to wear ties. Um, trying to honor the seminary, picks him up in a tie with a collared shirt, a pair of slacks. His friend was dressed pretty much like he was when they were playing basketball. Gets in the car, is visibly uncomfortable feeling sort of out of place, gets to the church and sees most people were dressed like Dave or better. Now, I don't know what was going on in that fellow's mind, but I can imagine the possibility, the likelihood of him thinking, this isn't for me. I don't fit in here. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the solution is to that, but it's something to be mindful of, that we would dishonor the poor man, that the poor man showing up might think, I can't fit in here. I can't serve here. There's no place for me here. We, we want to be mindful we're not doing it. Just like we want to be mindful we're not telling them, you go get your own food for the Lord's table. <laughs> just like we're be mindful of not just, here's a good seat for you to the, to the wealthy person and ignoring the poor person. Those are things just to be mindful of. And, and we want to be careful that we don't put into practice things that, um, that, that would work against that. I, I remember... Uh, when I uh, used to lead worship in our fellowship group, the fellowship group was the size of this church, I was told there was an informal business casual dress code, and I gladly submitted to it, but I was talking to one of the leaders, and I said, well, would that not exclude from serving people who can't afford dress casual clothes? To which the answer I got was, well, if they needed it, we'd buy them some. But I can only imagine the shame you'd be giving to someone when you tell them, you can't possibly serve us dressed as you are. We will buy you new clothes. I don't know. No, it's a sticky. It's a sticky knot. I mean, and you got to think carefully through it. I'm not trying to make the simplistic answers, but I think there are ways we could subtly communicate to people. Unless you're at this sort of social status level, you know, we don't want you serving here. Um, and so it's it's difficult. It's things to be mindful of um, and things to be aware of. Anyway, we're at time. God bless you.